Well, hello, John and Todd, and welcome to another edition of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to see both of you today. Um, it's another hot day here in Colorado. It's supposed to be about 100. And uh, of course, uh, we like it because it's a dry heat. So, you know, we can bear that 100 degrees, but we know that uh, the folks down in the southeast are bearing um, the remnants of a tropical storm that uh, has dumped a lot of rain down there, made it really humid. And of course, out west, uh, we're flying with some really high temperatures. And I know, John, that since you constantly pontificate about pre-flight planning and, and preparation, uh, today is one of those days if you're flying in the western half of the United States, as well as the rest of the, the country, but primarily in the western half of the United States, the big thing, of course, is making sure that you have the performance in your aircraft on days like today where the temperatures are hovering in the high 90s, low 100s, because it's, uh, it's really going to have an adverse effect. So welcome to you both. As always, it's good to see you. So uh, what's happening with you, John? Well, first off, I got to call BS on it's a dry heat. It doesn't feel as bad <laughs> because go stick your head in the oven at 100 degrees and tell you that's comfortable. That's dry heat. I mean, really, if it's hot, it's hot. It just brings more problems with it. <laughs> it's uh, out, in the, out in the high country. But anyway, I'm doing well, and uh, it's been hot here as, as well. I was 95 here yesterday, and we're not used to that because we have high humidity to go with it. Yeah. And th thunderstorms. In fact, I was sitting uh, having lunch uh, yesterday and at an outside restaurant looking at the parking lot when a pretty good thunderstorm came through. And then as soon as it stopped, it looked like three feet of the parking lot had disappeared into this white fog, which mm. was all the water vapor coming up. Yeah. And the humidity, I was sitting there not even moving with sweat coming off of me. So it's the humidity is a killer up here. And, and you bring up a good point about humidity um, because a lot of people, especially on the East Coast and the, and the lower lands where it is humid, you got to remember that as a pilot, you have to factor in that humidity because that too has an adverse effect on density, altitude, and aircraft performance. So don't forget about that. Just because you got high temperatures, if you have high humidity, that will um, have an effect on aircraft performance as well. What's happening in your world, Todd? Well, it's not quite so hot here in Seattle. I woke up this morning, it was about 55 degrees, and we'll have low 70s for, for a high, which yeah, is a lot different yeah. from a week or so ago when we had like 100 plus degrees here. So it's a, how should I say it? It's a, not a dry heat. It's sort of a damp cool. <laughs> yeah, you were escaping the, the verbal abuse if you came back with dry heat. <laughs> I love it when you choose your words carefully. So, well, hey, I've got a lot of practice doing that. I want to remind everybody before we get started that this show is being brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, otherwise known as PAMA, P A M A dot org, if you'd like to get all of them. And of Emco Insurance. If you need insurance, hull insurance, if you need insurance as a flight instructor or a renter, don't forget there's liability if you rent somebody's airplane, uh, give Avemco a call, 888-879-0389. Good people to deal with, good, good, good uh, people to talk to if you have any questions or concerns, whether you're using them as an insurance company or if you just have general questions, give them a call. Nice to deal with. And I saw recently um, on a blog that somebody was shopping insurance for 
flying clubs and, a, and an airplane that's being used by several people that are buying into pieces of the aircraft. Definitely talk to Avemco about that kind of insurance as well. Um, they're basically a one-stop shop and, um, and they're great people to talk to, as John said. So definitely give them a call. And of course, if you mention that you listen to Flight Safety Detectives, you're going to get a 5% discount, which every little bit helps, of course. So, well, John, we've had another busy week plus of, uh, of accidents. Well, and... let's, start with, let's start with some good news, Greg. Okay, let's start so you, with good news. All right, you and I have a very good friend who was just going to space after being denied for 40 years, 50 years of riding space. Yep. Wally is just a wonderful person. It just tickles my heart to see that she's finally going to get to go uh, into space, her lifelong dream. So it's really, yep. really a place. And she was a good friend of yours as well. She still is a good friend of mine. And uh, of course, I love that woman to death. I wrote a, a bit of a diatribe on Facebook about my relationship with Wally. Um, she was my first mentor at the NTSB when I was uh, an intern working for the board right out of Embry-Riddle. And we've had just a great relationship ever since. She's my biggest cheerleader, but I'm her biggest cheerleader because she, her accomplishments, if you go on Wikipedia or just look her up, she has had a fascinating life uh, professionally and, of course, just personally. And it is definitely worth the read. And of course, now she at 82 years old is still a bundle of energy. That woman has more energy than a lot of people I know in their 30s and 40s. So um, I'm very, very pleased that she's finally going to space. And um, it's been her lifelong dream. And I'm, I'm excited to talk to her about it. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to do that before she goes on July 20th. But we are definitely going to be talking to her on this show after the fact, because uh, I know that she's just going to be bubbling with uh, with all sorts of stories. So um, to our friend Wally Funk, congratulations. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to you and cheering you on on your space travels. Yeah, ditto with that. I agree 100 percent. All right. So we've had a busy week with accidents on the downside. Yeah, we have. Um, it's uh, it, there was one out here. Uh, two pilots. One was a private pilot who just received his uh, pilot certificate back in February of last year, flying with a more seasoned pilot ATP, multiple type ratings, uh, basically a corporate pilot who apparently was his mentor pilot. And uh, they were flying a G36, which is a later model bonanza coming out of California, heading back to the East Coast. They made a stop here in Aspen, Colorado. And rather than going out IFR, which they apparently originally were, and then they decided to cancel at the last minute and go out VFR, it's apparent that the airplane, when they took off, had climbed over the airport or at least over the town of Aspen to gain altitude. And then they went up um, an, a southeasterly pass called Midway Pass. Um, unfortunately, that aircraft crashed at around the 10,000, 11,000 foot level. Now the question is, of course, why they only stopped at that altitude circling over town rather than going higher to cross the mountains because they were heading to Des Moines. So that would have been more of an easterly track. Question is, did they get themselves into a canyon or at least in this pass, which is a narrow pass, finally determined that they weren't going to outclimb the terrain, try to turn around and bad things happen. 
That's what the investigators are going to be looking at. But it's sad because this was a, a, a relatively new airplane, a lot of sophisticated technology. You had uh, at least a, an accomplished pilot on that airplane. He had, uh, he had been on TV a couple of times providing his, uh, his expert opinions um, for a variety of different accidents. I've seen him in the past. So investigators are going to have to try and figure out what was going on there. But again, if this turns out to be an aircraft performance issue and lack of fundamental planning where you're coming out of a high altitude airport on a hot day and you're not really familiar with the geography in this area, that is a major problem. And this is just a demonstration that it doesn't just happen to student pilots and low time private pilots. You had an ATP that had a lot of, uh, a lot of flight time and multiple type ratings should very, have a very good understanding of aircraft performance. So these are the kinds of issues that are gonna have to be developed and, and dissected by the NTSB uh, in their investigation. Mike, how many times have we seen this, this type of accident before? Just over and over and over. Yep. You wonder what people are thinking when they go, I know it's exciting to fly low in those canyons uh, and, and enjoy the scenery, uh, but you get yourself in trouble if you don't pay attention, if you don't have a plan. Yep. And, you know, those, all those facts have to be taken into consideration before that prop turned one revolution. Absolutely. Uh, you do have to have plan A, plan B, and sometimes even plan C. And, and of course, a lot of folks, and, and I've seen this and you've seen this, and I know that Todd has run across this as well. And that is what people lack in their own personal skills, abilities, and knowledge, or they believe that the aircraft performance will keep them out of trouble, gets them into trouble. And it, I'll bet you dollars to donuts in this particular instance, they were thinking that the aircraft performance was going to outclimb the terrain. This terrain climbs very quickly. And a lot of times on a hot day, I don't care if the airplane's turbocharged or not. The fact of the matter is, is that this terrain can outclimb the performance of an airplane very quickly. You've killed your safety margins. And unfortunately, you're going to end up killing yourself. Yeah, we've seen that all too often. Yeah. It's, a, it's a shame, really. It's a shame. Well, we had some other ones, too. We had one, an interesting one down in uh, Texas uh, with a former military airplane, I believe it was. Yeah, an old, uh, older Warbird, I believe. Yep, and we had a 172, a simple one up in Missoula, Montana. Yep, uh, husband uh, and wife, apparently, unknown circumstances. Um, it's really hard to hurt yourself in a Cessna 172. Um, so the question is, what were they doing? Where were they going? And, uh, and again, it's been hot all over the country. So even if you're flying with just two people in, in full gas, uh, you have a performance issue that you need to consider during any course of flight. In addition to aircraft performance issues, there's also a human performance because as we all know, if it's hot, you're sweating a lot and such, there are certain physiological uh, stresses in the body and that may affect your decision-making and your reaction time. Yep. And again, uh, these accidents were happening around a holiday weekend. So you have to look at the self-induced pressure. Was there, you know, one of those pushes to, uh, to accomplish the mission because you're going on a holiday and that kind of stuff. So these are the kinds of things that start to factor in. And then, of course, we had a uh, Cirrus that crashed on takeoff. 
And um, again, it looks like a, uh, a departure stall type accident because the airplane didn't make it that far off the end of the runway. And then a funny one in your neck of the woods, John, and your former neck of the woods, Todd, and that is uh, there was a Falcon 2000 out at Martha's Vineyard that actually hit a couple of raccoons and significantly damaged the landing gear. Those must have been two big, fat raccoons. <laughs> I mean, what are they feeding them steroids there, John, or what? Well, they're down there with all the people of substance. And oh, even, so, so they're, and, they're being fed. They're being fed lobster. well, yes. <laughs> fed well. You know, it's a, it's a small island, so there is one trash dump, and it's not far from the airport. Yeah. So, and plus, the airport, <laughs> the airport, one part of it's on the beach, so there's always uh, uh, fishermen that leave stuff behind. And, yeah, well, I see, you know, fish and some beef, that's good for you. It's probably the cake, the cookies and all the other stuff that these guys are getting fattened up on. But to be able to damage the landing gear on a Falcon 2000 by hitting two raccoons, that's pretty entertaining. I can't wait to see the rest of the report on that one. I have looked at many wildlife strikes over the years, especially birds and horses and cows. This is the first. Raccoons I've never seen before. <laughs> Usually they're too quick. And uh, maybe it was at nighttime because you don't see them out during the day. Usually, unless they they're sick with rabies or something, but yeah, normally, well, normally you know, and they too, if you see them in in your headlights at night in the road, they give you that deer in the headlight look. They're looking at you, you're looking at them, and next thing, somebody's doing something. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm cleaning something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, we've uh, we talked about 737 that uh, was ditched uh, just off the uh, the coast of Hawaii, out of coming out of Honolulu. And of course, the NTSB has now launched a partial team out to the accident site. Uh, they're in the process of trying their, their primary issue right now. Uh, they are gathering information through the other um, subject matter groups or groups that have been formed. One, of course, is the operations group. Um, they're going to be also looking at aircraft performance, maintenance, and then once they get an airplane, if they get the airplane, they'll be looking at system structures, power plants issues as well. Um, but there are a number of things that over the past week since this accident occurred, um, I've looked at it, and I know both you and Todd, John, have looked at these, these issues. I've got a shopping list full, but I know that Todd's done some work, <laughs> dissected the flight path a little bit and actually looked to see where the aircraft had gone down. So um, I want to just turn it over to you, Todd, real quick for a, uh, a Reader's Digest version of where you think as far as depth of water, what, uh, what it's going to take to not only recover the aircraft, if in fact they recover the aircraft, or they just solely go after the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. Well, let me start at the end. That is, where is the aircraft now? Well, according to uh, reports from the Coast Guard and the other rescue uh, teams, it went into the water about two nautical miles uh, uh, south of the shore. And at that part of Oahu, according to the NOAA charts, the water can be anywhere from a couple of hundred feet deep to around 100 feet deep. In other words, it's not off the continental shelf. It's not in a deep canyon. It's well within the technical capability of commercial divers, even the U.S. Navy. Keep in mind, Pearl Harbor is only a few miles away from there. So... 
there's no shortage of equipment to go get that that aircraft or the uh, cockpit voice recorder or flight data recorder. Uh, the progress of that, we'll have to wait and see. But as far as what did the aircraft do after it took off, it took off from Honolulu. It was heading toward Maui, which is generally to, I believe, the uh, north and east. But shortly after takeoff, the aircraft was actually making a wide circle uh, going back toward the southeast, as though, and again, I'm not sure if this is the standard departure for Honolulu, but given that they reported engine problems shortly after takeoff, I think 400 feet altitude or so, it stands to reason that they were trying to turn around and set up for landing. Whether or not they were turning as uh, quickly as they could have, that's unclear because the investigation is still ongoing. But clearly the aircraft was not heading toward its destination shortly after takeoff. Now, and of course, it, it went in the water short of uh, landing. Now, when you talk about the depth of water there, it's obvious that if the aircraft is only in 100 or 200 feet of water, hell, you can almost see the airplane. So it's not going to take any search effort. Um, but of course, if it has gone off that, that deeper shelf or gone into that deeper shelf and that kind of stuff, that's going to be a little more expensive. It's going to take a little more time. And of course, the recovery techniques are going to be a lot different as well, because you may not, again, recover the aircraft. It's really trying to get whatever section of the airplane the CVR and the FDR are still in, and maybe you just focus on that. And that question I have for you, John, though, is we get the cockpit voice recorder, we get the flight data recorder. This is an old airplane. Um, this airplane had almost 70,000 hours of flight time. It's a dog when you look at it from that standpoint. Plus, it's being used um, in, in the islands. So it's up and down, up and down, up and down multiple times, accumulating a lot of stressful hours, of course. And then as we've seen in the past with historical information with these older aircraft, we always have to worry about aging aircraft issues. And then of course, we also have to worry about aging engine issues. Um, it's my understanding that these engines may have been hung on the wing back in 2019, but if they're worked hard, I mean, again, this is an old airplane. It's up, down, up, down, up, down. That's a lot of stresses on those engines and that kind of stuff. Where do you think that part of the investigation is going to focus? And is there going to be enough information, even though possibly this could have a very old flight data recorder? But if it was retrofitted with a newer recorder, not the type that we see on a 787, because it, you're still going to have limited parameters that are recorded based on this old aircraft, what are we going to be able to get out of all of that? Well, you said a mouthful there, but let's stop. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to say a mouthful after this, too, because I've got a lot of issues that I'd be looking at as an investigator. All right. So let's go backwards a little bit. The flight data recorder, uh, depending if... Uh, where this airplane was in its past, what the FAA let them get away with, there, were, there was a requirement to have a much more robust flight data recorder on commercial airplanes after a series of accidents in the, in the late 90s into 2000. So uh, if they have a really good uh, recorder, we might end up with multiple tens, 50, 60, 70, 80 even parameters to look at. So that would be quite helpful if it is. <clears throat> The second piece, you said the engines were hung in 19. Part of the problem that, that we're seeing now is that we've been parking airplanes that have JT8 
D engines on them, which is what this airplane had, uh, by quite frequently. American has been, been parking their MD-80s over the last three years, uh, and there's two engines on each one of those airplanes. And what is happening to some of these cargo operators, what they're doing, instead of overhauling the engines that they have on the airplane, they're picking up time-continued uh, engines out of the essentially the, uh, the scrapyard. So an airplane comes into aircraft storage and it's got an engine that's got maybe three or 4,000 hours left on it before it has to go in for a major overhaul. They're buying these engines for 10 cents on the dollar and they're putting them on the airplanes and flying them away. And uh, sometimes the history is not well known uh, on these engines. And sometimes you, you're buying a pig and a poke. Uh, but this, that's the way it's going today because there just is so many of those engines out in the, in the deserts of California and Arizona, New Mexico. They're just, there's just a lot of them. So the, the board's going to really want, I mean, they'd love to see the hardware so that they can really determine the performance. Because we know we had one engine fail and we had another engine that was supposedly running hot, according to the crew. Hot is relative. Um, especially if you're, you know, trying to keep the airplane afloat, um, you're probably at max blast or full power, maximum power, takeoff power. They weren't real heavy. So the question is, if they aren't real heavy and they got the engine at max blast, that airplane is certified to fly on one engine. Why couldn't they make it back to an airport? Yeah, well, obviously, maybe it was running too hot to make full power. And also, I wonder, and this is just thinking out loud, but when you look at the graph that, that Todd has put together of altitude, it starts at 2,000 feet, and this airplane <clears> is coming down in a step. And I wonder if they weren't throttling the engine back to cool it off and then pushing the power up to gain some more distance towards the airport. And each time they did that, they came down like a flight of stairs. You lose some altitude, you, you get some speed, get some altitude back, and and come down step by step by step. Yeah, by well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that here in a minute. Um, what they did in their flight path. So, but what else now with uh, with the board and what you think they need to recover to really look at the you know the engine issues uh, because that's going to apparently be the focus of of or at least a, a focal point of this investigation. Well, they're going to certainly want to see what the fuel flow was and what the N one and N two were doing. You know, depending on what recorder, it may have all the engine parameters on it. Uh, and boy, that would be a godsend if they did, because then we could see what really was going on with the engine and also see what went wrong with the, the uh, engine that, that failed and why. You know, was there excessive fuel flow, for example, it raised the temperatures? Or was it, you know, the JTAD is a mechanical uh, fuel metering system. So was there a failure inside, which we have seen that before on some airplanes where uh, the fuel control unit essentially would fail the fuel. In fact, I've seen one where the fuel metering rod had failed and uh, it just dumped fuel into the engine, take off power kind of fuel, and they had no way of controlling it. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they get out of the engines. I hope they go after both of those engines at the very least. And, and I also would like to know where that airplane broke, the tail broke, because if it broke in the right spot, forward of where the recorders are, it might be very easy to get them. Or if they're right in the area where the recorders are on either side, an ROV could easily get in there and, and rip away some metal and uh, get to them. It would be a lot easier than if the airplane were intact. And Todd is right. If it's only 100 feet, then it's only 
naval, naval salvage people. We used them on TWA 800. Uh, they do a phenomenal job. So they could get down there and pick that whole airplane up if it's only 100 feet. Yeah. If it's well, built together. And, yeah. still and and now of course that's that's the big question at this point now you and i talked uh, when we were doing our live update you know right after this accident and we were throwing out uh, discussion points about what may have caused the uh, the number one to or at least one of the engines to um, fail and the other one to run hot of course you know looking at the blogs and watching all the junior investigators pontificate out there um they, you know, there was a, a discussion about birds. Well, I mean, this this accident or event took place at night. And while, yes, there is an alert for birds coming in and out of that airport, I don't think you'd see big flocks of birds flying at night. So that's not really at the top of the list for causing an engine failure. It could. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. You got to look for evidence of that. But we also talked about, you know, problems with fueling. And that is, was the proper grade of Jet A being used? Was it inadvertently mixed with 100 low lead or even mo gas inadvertently in the truck? And that's what got into the airplane. And uh, that's why the one engine failed and the other one was running at an extreme temperature. Very, very definitely. We have seen that before. I mean, I've, I've been around airports and where that has been caught on, on a couple of times, a couple of occasions. So it really is uh, something that they need to look at already. And I'd like to, oops, once you get through with that call, I'd like to add something. You mentioned earlier, oh. Excuse me, the house phone, and I didn't turn it off. I'll do the same with mine. You mentioned earlier how the aircraft might be uh, intact or not intact. Well, based on some of the early reports from the crews that rescued the pilots, it was reported that one of them was hanging on to uh, some of the cargo and the other one was hanging on to the tail of the aircraft. And that implies to me that uh, that aircraft was not intact. And mm -hmm. it's not surprising given that uh, this was a ditching at sea and you have the engines hanging underneath the wings. And as was seen with the uh, ditching on the Hudson, even though that was a relatively benign environment compared to the sea state off Hawaii, uh, one of the engines was torn off of that aircraft. So even though that aircraft was floating, it had major structural damage once it entered the water. And, and it, uh, it, it, <laughs> I was able to find out some information about the fact that the sea state at the time of this, uh, of this ditching, um, the seas were rough. It, it was not glass smooth. It was not flat. But in fact, there were some pretty good sized swells and, uh, and the crew was cognizant of that and ended up putting the airplane down in a nose high attitude so that they wouldn't dig the nose in during the course of landing. So that may have contributed initially to breaking up the tail or at least opening up the fuselage, uh, which left the tail separate or almost separated from the rest of the aircraft and dumping some of the cargo out. Um, that one of the pilots was, uh, was clinging on to. Um, the other thing about this and in, in stepping back is I, I started listening initially to the air traffic control communications, not really focused on the two-way, but listening to what the crew was saying. And then I went back and started listening again and again and again. I've got real issues with air traffic control in this particular event. 
Um, the, the female controller is, is dealing with not only this aircraft that has a problem and it's a reported problem, but she's also communicating with another company airplane to this particular company, Transair. And then um, she's on frequency talking to other people. It's like, why isn't anybody declaring an emergency here? And if you declare an emergency, that air trap controller is going to clear the frequency, turn it over to somebody else, put those guys in a hold, stick them somewhere so that he or she can focus on that aircraft that's in distress. Now, the question is, was it because she was talking and she was talking a lot? Was she stepping on the crew trying to declare an emergency? And if and even if that occurred, once she could ask those guys, are you declaring an emergency? And if they didn't give a response, she could have declared the emergency on their behalf and initiated, okay, I'm going to deal with this. You guys, I'm going to switch you to a different frequency, go sit in a holding pattern. I'll get back to whatever. You know, but, somebody, somebody in the tower must have done some of that because the fire department got an alert and they actually launched their, their rescue boat. So somebody in the tower must have notified uh, the airport fire and rescue people uh, for them to initiate uh, their procedures. Yeah, well, again, and that's fine, but your priority is to talk to that aircraft that's in distress. And she kept asking them, uh, souls on board, fuel, all that kind of stuff. Hey, we'll get back to you on that. We've got a different issue. So I would, if I'm doing the investigation, I would definitely have the air traffic control group chairman start looking at, you know, were these procedures followed properly? Should they have focused more attention on this crew and what was going on? Um, I know that the crew then was asking for vectors. They couldn't see the airport and things like that, which I have a real issue with as well. From what I understand, they're local pilots. They had just taken off. You know, you're going one direction, you make a 180 degree turn, you're going basically back the direction from which you came. You should be able to see the airport. They got up to well over 2000 feet. So yeah, there's a lot of lights out there, but you should have been able to see a rotating beacon. That's gonna be an issue to see what was going on with that particular crew. But my bigger issue is why they spent so much time making this big lazy uh, arcing circle like Todd was talking about, you lose the engine at 400 feet, you're coming back right now. Why fly out into the abyss? And then all of a sudden, and again, it's going to be critical that they determine the timing of where this quote second engine was having, you know, was running hot. Because if it's running hot simultaneous to the first engine failing, you're coming back now. You're not going to go out there and fly around and do checklists and do things like that, knowing that you could possibly lose that second engine. And, and I think those kinds of things are going to be very critical to come out of, um, uh, of the interviews with these flight crew members. Um, did they run the checklist? If they use the checklist as an excuse to fly out into the abyss, I also have a problem with that because we saw what happened with Swiss Air 111 up in Nova Scotia back in 1998, where they had an in-flight fire, but they flew out over the ocean to run a checklist and ended up burning that airplane out of the sky, unfortunately. So, I mean, there are times when you run checklists, but in this particular instance where the situation is starting to cascade and get more critical, you don't want to go out there and waste time and fly two, three, four, five, 20 miles offshore. 
you turn around and start heading back. You can run a checklist on the way back in. And then of course, if they were running checklists, what checklist did they run? If they didn't run a checklist, what, what checklist didn't they run? And it's my understanding that there may be some recollection issues between the, the captain and the first officer as to how the airplane may have been configured, what checklist they did and did not run. These things have to be ferreted out because again, it requires crew coordination as to getting this airplane, sick airplane, back to an airport in a timely manner. And, and, and again, I think those are going to be very critical focal points of this investigation. Did this airplane need to be ditched? If they had turned around in a timely manner, would the airplane have made it back? If this airplane, if the engine uh, let go and failed at 400 feet, they would have still been in their takeoff configuration, probably with the gear up, but the flap still configured. You make a 180 degree turn, you come back to the runway, and I haven't looked at the, the weather to see what the winds were, but if they're negligible, <laughs> you put the gear back down and, and fly the approach back to the runway you just took off of. These are the kinds of things that I would expect the NTSB in their investigative process to be ferreting out, dissecting, and really trying to get a, a good level of understanding. Because yes, this was successful. The other problem I have based on information I know, and that is one of the pilots, and I believe it was the captain, was significantly injured, had a significant head injury. Well, we have shoulder harnesses on those aircraft. They are inertial real shoulder harnesses. So the question is, how do you get a significant head injury in a controlled event if the shoulder harnesses and the seats are still intact and, and everything being equal? How is it that they got that, that head injury? Did the seat belts and shoulder harnesses perform as necessary and as designed? Did the seats come loose? Was the impact greater than a controlled ditching event? These are the kinds of things that really need to be discussed and ferreted out because if there are crash worthiness issues, they need to be discussed because we're still flying old airplanes out there. I'd like to ask even that. New ones. Go ahead. Even new ones, the seats on the 737, 300, 400, 500, those are the same as, as the, uh, the 200 seats. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's a lot more of those airplanes flying than there are 200s. So yes, you raise some great issues about survival factors and equipment on board. And it's just many more reasons to go get that airplane. I have a question or two about the kind of information that will be available to the public at large. As we all know, the uh, accident will probably have a report, but more importantly, there's going to be a public docket that will have a lot of the detailed kind of things that Greg just mentioned. And what you also mentioned about the air traffic control conversation, that happened to be recorded over the air, available to the public, no restriction. But when it comes to the public docket, I know the cockpit voice recorder, the audio won't be available, but would the audio of the air traffic control conversation be available in that public docket for us to review in the, in the future? It should be available. Typically, the board gets the actual a copy of the actual tapes from, from the tower, um, as well as any radar playback um, or ADSB data. And, and the one thing to, to caution the listeners about, because a lot of people try to dissect these accidents using flight aware data or, or flight radar 24 and things like that. The fidelity of that data 
isn't as it seems. We have seen discrepancies between the actual data that the FAA records, ADSB radar data, and, um, and then marrying it up with uh, a transcription of radio communications with you know, proper timing hacks. There has been a discrepancy in the fidelity of the data. And so you can't draw a lot of conclusions from the stuff that's available right now to the public. And that's why it'll, again, be very important to dissect the, the good data, that is the, the data with fidelity, to really understand aircraft performance, what was going on, and what was taking place with the aircraft compared to the communications that were taking place, because that too tells the story. Did the crew get overwhelmed? Were they dealing with issues? Um, did they handle uh, air traffic control? I mean, I know that at one point, I believe one of the pilots told the controller to stand by because she was asking questions. It's like, hey, we'll get back to you. <laughs> we got to fly this airplane kind of thing. So um, those are going to be critical issues. And yes, they sh that kind of information should be available in the docket. It may be in transcript form. And a lot of times when I've uh, when we put stuff in when I was with the board and now in my afterlife, I have to request a copy of the actual tape or playback information, uh, radar and ADSB from the FAA through FOIA because the board doesn't put those audios into the public docket. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I'd like to make a note on what you just said about the flight aware and flight radar 24 data. Uh, there's nonsensical data in what was down, what I downloaded from flight radar 24. For example, it illustrates that toward the end of the flight, there was a period of time where the altitude was zero, then it pops up to 25 feet, then down to zero again. And clearly, this was not a jet ski for some period of time. So you, know, <laughs> yeah. you can't trust the data on that level. Secondly, uh, these organizations, Flight Aware and Flight Radar 24, they actually rely on thousands of volunteers all over the world, many of whom put together receivers that are made up of, believe it or not, a Raspberry Pi computer, which is like a $30 or $40 computer, little antenna about yay big. I have one in my office, right? I put it on the windowsill. It can pick up airplanes from 20 or 30 miles away. Mm -hmm. And it's a great tool to get a general idea of what's going on. Yes. But for precise altitude or airspeed, no. Don't rely on anything you would get off of Flight Radar 24 or Flight Aware. And, and a lot of the information that we've gotten through uh, ADSB and radar data, of course, we try to marry it up against the flight data recorder data um, just to be able to put together a timeline of performance what the airplane was doing versus what crew actions were and things like that. That's the storytelling is in the data. And then of course it's up to the investigators to do the proper analysis of what's going on, what the crew's actions or reactions were and things like that. Um, but you have to have good data because garbage in garbage out. And we've seen that in the past where we've had um, bad information, which provided unfortunately uh, the basis for a bad outcome in, in the analysis. This event involved a 737-200 in the Hawaiian Islands where the aircraft was seriously damaged and lost. Some in the audience might think back, hey, what about that Aloha event back in the 80s where you had corrosion and aging aircraft issues? Could anything that was related to that incident be happening here? Now, my first inclination was no. It was a completely different set of circumstances. But one idea did pop in my head. Through what happened post Aloha, were there, there were issues certainly with the aircraft structure having aging issues and testing on that. 
How about issues with engines that spend a lot of time in that kind of environment? Are there special uh, maintenance procedures or tests, whether it has anything to do with Aloha or not, that are specifically targeted toward engines that spend time in that high salt uh, environment? John's um, real familiar with that. Ba basically, no. Although there are, if the airline so chooses, uh, there are some performance checks you can be doing on a regular basis. There's things like uh, uh, turbine washes where you inject uh, water uh, into the hot section through the, through the front end of the engine, but you're really spraying enough water inside uh, to get through the engine and that sometimes cleans the carbon off the blades, which would be a protective material uh, for the salt in some cases. But in any event, there's, there's additional checks that can be done to the engines, regardless of they're in a salt environment or just uh, companies that are monitoring performance. Engine repairs are expensive, not just the stuff we see that on the gate where you're changing a, a component or something, but I'm talking about an overhaul. Many years ago, to tear down a JT8D and do an inspection and put it back and replacing no parts whatsoever other than seals and gaskets was a $250,000 adventure. And I'm talking about more than 40 years ago. I have no idea what that, probably five or $600,000 now. You can see why the airlines would go to the desert and get time continued engines rather than spending the money to run them through a shop because they're probably a shop visit is going to go way over a million dollars. So they're going to pick these engines up for much less than that in the desert. And if they have 5,000 or sometimes even a help a lot more time on them, they're going to run them and get the additional time off those engines. So and that's and I think, John, you bring up a good point, and that is that that's where the NTSB is going to have to focus some of their, their effort, of course, is dissecting the history of those engines, seeing how they were maintained. And that takes you then from the actual aircraft into the company policies and procedures. You're very familiar with it because when you and I worked accidents together, uh, you being with the airline and the union, um, that was usually a focal point that uh, the system structures or power plant group chairman would, would actually execute. That is, okay, I, I wanna know the history. I wanna see the maintenance. I wanna see the processes. I wanna see where these parts came from. Um, I wanna see the wear and tear on these. How, are, how is the uh, wear and tear on these engines monitored? The continuous airworthiness processes that you're very familiar with and you probably helped write when you were at US Air. Um, those are the kinds of things because if this engine wasn't capable of producing sufficient power, which this airplane is supposedly certified to be able to fly on one engine. And again, they were light loaded. This was not a heavy load. If they can't make it back to the airport on one engine, I don't care if the engine's running hot. Hell, you firewall the damn thing and let it, you know, run until it burns off the wing if you have to, but you're trying to get the airplane back. If it's not capable of producing sufficient power, the question is why? Is it mechanically induced or is it a result of possibly a fuel issue, bird ingestion, whatever? You have to see if it's an external issue or an internal issue. And well, I'm sure that, that out of the four people that the NTSB sent out there, I'm sure one of them is going to be an engine person. So hopefully they they uh, they are they are on top of their game and go after the data needed, not just on the flight recorder, but go after. I mean, I really would love to see those engines come up. 
I don't care about the rest of the airplane, but those engines, that's, that's the focus. That is the focus. Yeah. One other question I'd like to see answered, and I'm sure the NTSB will be, will be addressing this, is who is maintaining this aircraft? Now, typically, an airline may not have all of their repairs in-house and all of their maintenance in-house. That's okay. Question is, where was this airline going to get their airplanes uh, looked at, uh, C-checks, D-checks, et cetera? It would have to be an authorized repair station that doesn't have to be in Hawaii, doesn't even have to be in the United States. And how difficult would it be to get information from that repair station if it were an overseas station somewhere? Yeah. That's an interesting question because most 737-200s uh, are not certified for extended overwater uh, coverage. So they'd have to be ferrying it with a special ferry permit from the FAA to fly on two engines uh, in that generation of an airplane. So it's, I mean, it's just, the more you look at this, every time you look at one issue, you come up with 10 new questions. Yeah. And every I mean, one of those 10 comes up with another 10. And that's what acts investigation is all about. And that's why it ends up being, or at least the, <laughs> that's your end game. And that is thorough and methodical. You got to keep asking these questions of why until you run out of the why questions. Usually when you run out of why questions, you're pretty close to the origin of the whole sequence of events and understanding all of the issues that may have caused or contributed to the accident. So there are still a lot of questions and especially because the aircraft has not yet been recovered and the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder probably do contain some very valuable information. It's one thing to get recall from the crew and, and if there is a disparity, you got to try and figure out why there's a disparity between stories, um, recollections, and of course, any kind of trauma that are experienced by both of these pilots that may have an influence, good, bad, or indifferent with their recall of the events. So yes, you have some at least initial information, but you always have to corroborate it with other information, whether that is circumstantial evidence or hard fact data such as what comes off of a flight data recorder and a cockpit voice recorder, because we've talked about this in the past, and that is they are two electronic witnesses that can't change their story. They record artifacts, whether it's data artifact or verbal artifact of the crew's discussions and that kind of stuff, they're just artifacts. Then it's up to the investigators to plug that information in to the rest of the information that they are developing during the process to either ferret out fact or fiction. And, and right now we're still in that stage. You know, I, I've had a couple of people in the last few days say things to me similar to, why bother? It's a 737 200, it's an old airplane, who cares? But based upon what we were just saying, you could see why it, we care. Company policy and procedures have an impact on this, right? Including the maintenance procedures, who does their maintenance has an impact on this? What was the time of these engines? What was, when were they last looked at? It's a whole bunch of, of process questions that have to be asked and answered, and they pertain to all aviation fleets, not just this airplane. You know, uh, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about this takeoff and losing the engine at 400 feet, we know from the air traffic controller that there was an airport just a few miles north of the airport. Yeah. Right. Hawaii is loaded with airports because of the Second World War. I don't know how many landing strips there are around Hawaii, but I'll be surprised if there's not a dozen of them. 
uh, that he could have been heading in any one of those directions around that island. Why not? Why did he turn to go out at 400 feet? I I just, that's a, that's a big question that needs to be answered. The why did you proceed at 400 feet? And I'd like to uh, emphasize what you just said, John, the fact that it doesn't matter whether it's an old airplane. In fact, it doesn't even matter what year it happened or where it happened. These are issues which transcend time and space in that behavior of organizations, uh, behavior of crews under duress, behavior of air traffic controllers under duress. These questions will be with us no matter what kind of technology is in that control tower or that airplane. Yeah, and, and playing on that, if that was the mentality that we as investigators used, then every warbird out there, especially like the, the most recent B-17 accident that happened in Connecticut, <laughs> the board wouldn't go out and investigate. Yeah, it's an old airplane. Who cares? You know, yeah, we killed seven people, but who cares? That's not the point. The point is we still are operating airplanes of all calibers, all years around the world, not just here in the United States. And there are always issues. There are always benefits to an accident investigation that can, that can be pushed forward into basically current aviation as well as future aviation. And a lot of it, yeah, it may not be hardware related because yes, we don't fly B-17s anymore except for air shows and tours and that kind of stuff, but it's the operation. And the fact that these pilots who are required to go through certain levels of training and, um, and the FAA has to approve pilots who fly old airplanes, there is a standard there. And do we have to change the standard? In this particular instance, yes, this is a 737-200. Yes, it's an old airplane, but guess what? They're still in use. And if there is some safety benefit that we can learn from this accident, there are still operators out there that would like to know why that engine failed, why that crew didn't make it back to an airport, because they may have to change their policies and procedures to, uh, to accommodate those kinds of findings. Maybe they change the way they do business. Maybe the way, maybe they change the way they maintain their aircraft. Maybe, the, uh, maybe they change the way they train their pilots. So there is always a safety benefit regardless of the age of the aircraft. It's about the circumstances, not necessarily the hardware. It's a good point to uh, end this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll have more discussions about this accident as more information is learned. And of course, we will keep you, our listeners and our viewers, attuned to what's going on because John and I are constantly getting, (laughs) excuse me, John and I are constantly getting information. So um, we will, we'll stay with this story. So my friend, now in, in this particular instance, it's, so now my friends, it's always good to, uh, to be with you on the show. We appreciate our listener feedback and our viewer feedback. And, and I can't thank you, those folks that are subscribing to the YouTube portion of our podcast. Now, we're getting some great feedback. I love the emails. I love the enthusiasm that people are bringing in their emails to us. Some, you know, again, we're still beta testing how we do the, the video portion. So we're still working through some of the kinks and you're seeing it raw. <laughs> you're seeing it in the beta form. We haven't polished this. You know, we aren't smooth. 
Um, we do quirky things. And of course, when you got, you know, John and phones ringing all the time, it is what it is because we try to make this as if you were sitting with me, John and Todd in this case, and just chatting. Yeah, the phone's going to ring. We're going to try and polish this up a little bit, um, but we, this is what it is. Um, but we appreciate your feedback. We definitely appreciate your suggestions and, uh, and keep them coming. You can always get a hold of us at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com and uh, give us your good, your bad, your ugly, what you like, what you don't like. We're trying to, to make those changes as we get the suggestions and we've gotten some very good suggestions. So, and of course we appreciate Todd's participation because not only does he contribute to our discussion, but he has been our uh, YouTube um, <laughs> genius, if you will, because I don't have the time and John just doesn't know what the hell he's doing. But the fact is, <laughs> and see, I can always get a laugh out of John when I make a comment. So, but the, the big thing is, is that we, we greatly appreciate uh, you, our viewers and our listeners. And uh, we, will, we will keep you informed as, as to not only this accident, but as we dissect other accidents as, as well. So John, I know that uh, you wanna thank our sponsors again um, as we conclude this show. Well, before I go on to thank our sponsors, I just wanted to share some sad news that you and I have uh, recently had. Happy Happy Fourth of July! We lost a very dear friend. Yes, we uh, did. Somebody that I've known uh, for many many years. He used to work for the FAA in New York, and I crossed paths with him with some informal hearings, and also crossed paths for him in Washington when he was the, at DOJ, Department of Justice, and then when he was out into the world as a private. Uh, attorney, always full of life, always, always ready to do anything crazy and have a good time. Just an all-around general, nice guy. Uh, yeah. Greg, and I know you know him very well, Greg. Yeah, Greg Winton and I go back uh, quite a ways. He uh, he was the epitome of what the FAA and the legal system should be. He was always he's very knowledgeable. He was willing to listen. He, you know, he he really understood because he <laughs> he was a pilot. He owned several airplanes, so he got it. He could relate. And um, I I had the the benefit and, and the blessing to work with him as an expert on some of the cases that he had been working on when he left the FAA and went out into the private sector. Um, I utilized his talents for a case that I was working with a friend. Who, uh, who got crossways with the FAA, and he brought reality to the discussion. Not, okay, here it is by the book, and this is the way it's going to be. It's the practical application. And, um, and he was just the epitome. He was just the prince of a guy. And like you said, John, he was there. He would do anything for you. And he was one of my closest friends as far as my attorney friends, where when we got together, it was always entertaining with him. And he had an infectious laugh that no, you could definitely get him to laugh. And just listening to him laugh always made me laugh. Great guy. And we're going to sorely miss, and so is the industry, going to sorely miss Greg Winton um, in the legal profession. And I know there are a lot of people out there that are 
again, friends of ours in our big circle that are hurting over this news because this was totally unexpected and definitely premature. He was a young man um, in his 50s and he went too soon. But uh, again, we'll be thinking about him and his family um, throughout this grieving period. And again, uh, we will miss Greg Witten. Yes. Amen. All right. So I want to remind everybody that this program has been brought to you by PAMA, Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance. If you need insurance, renewing a power loss on your airplane, renewing uh, liability insurance. If you're a student, you need liability insurance to make sure you don't crash somebody else's airplane and get drawn into a big lawsuit. Cost to defend can kill you. So if you're doing anything in aviation, general aviation, give Avemco a call. They're a full service insurance company. They cover the whole, the whole territory for general aviation. You can get a hold of them at, on 800, uh, on their toll-free line, which is 888-879-0389 or avemco.com. Give them a call. Give them a try. See what they can do for you. Any time you save money uh, in the aviation game, is another hour you can fly. And just 5% for mentioning this show uh, can get you another few hours of flying. So give them a call. And I'm going to... I'm going to, I'm going to recruit, I'm going to recruit somebody who was going to make that little commercial more entertaining than you, John. Well, I never said I was a <laughs> personality. Most mechanics aren't. I mean, we, we work on our heads now. We work alone. We, we uh, have unique language <clears throat> that you really don't want to share in public. That's right. But, See, cause I would love to hear you do that in your normal vocabulary that could be very entertaining it may not go well with our listeners but it could be very entertaining well it's beyond our it's it, it might be a double x <laughs> if you ever work around the mechanic that's having trouble putting something together and you you would understand that engineers have a lot of new for names yeah. uh, guys that design airplanes and 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 the rest of it because yeah. uh, Sometimes I design airplanes and I don't care if it ever gets maintained. You know, I, I have a story that I tell once in a while that a, uh, one of the inspection panels on Boeing, and of course it wasn't your fault, Todd, when you worked for Boeing, but one of the inspection panels up in the rudder was three feet away from where the inspection needed to be done. Now, how do you go through a hole that's that big to get down three feet to do an inspection on a bearing on the rudder? I mean, it's just crazy sometimes the gyrations that maintenance people had to go through to get their jobs done. Now, it became a little easier when we started investing in some high-priced boroscopes where you could drill out a hole in, either in the skin or drill out a rivet and go in there and take a look, provided it was allowed by the procedures. But, uh, boy, some of these early airplanes, they never took into consideration what had to be done to keep them uh, in an airworthy condition. Yeah. So... As we wrap up again, in this session, you heard at least two accidents that, that could have benefited from better pre-flight planning. The big one with the 737, there were other airports directly in front of him that he could have gone to after he lost that engine. But for whatever reason, he didn't. Did he even know they were there? 
Did he look at that before when he did his pre-flight planning? We'll never know. Well, we might know if they asked that question mm-hmm. since they survived. But the, pre-plan- the pre-planning of your flight is so critical to what you do. And then the other piece of it is it's only half the pie. The other piece is, is your uh, walk-around inspection. In fact, we just received an email from an airline captain mm-hmm. wrote in and yeah. told us that he has changed his pre-flight procedures to reflect what we've been saying because he just normally walked around the airplane and, and casually looked at it. He said he no longer does that. He now takes a look. You know, why do you, do you assume that water under your, that fluid underneath your airplane is water or do you go over and take a look at it? Yeah. Or, or the puddle under your engine, do you assume it's... It's not an oil leak or a fuel leak. I mean, these are all things that one has to look at. Mechanical systems wear out. O-rings seep. You need to look at it because maintenance has been, the maintenance involvement with through flight airplanes in the airlines has been going down for years. Slowly, slowly, slowly looking away. Uh, The number of mechanics looking at the airplane throughout the day. They go two or three days now without a mechanic looking at them. Yeah. And I think that we have, you and I worked a perfect accident that we should dissect on the show. And that was a uh, former Continental 737 in El Paso, Texas, where a mechanic and um, unfortunately lost his life. But there are a lot of learn, uh, learned lessons there because uh, the flight crew, the pilot who did the walk around noticed something. But it was that it was the response by these mechanics that ended up creating the issue. So I think that would be a good one as well to talk about, because that was a case where the pre-flight was good. Unfortunately, it was the response that became fatal. Yes, that is a good one. That is a good one. All right. So remember, folks, one of these accidents we had today uh, had a rather rusty pilot with a uh, flight instructor with them. And it still led to bad outcome. You've got to plan every action out. So if you haven't flown recently, make sure you get somebody to fly with you that has, preferably instructor, but it doesn't have to be. Get somebody that that has been flying more more than you have to fly with you and then go through the whole process, the pre-planning, the walk around, and then the discussion in the cockpit about the airplane. Mm -hmm. All, All important pieces that, that we all should put into our memory bank and do them every single time. I think we can really have an impact on this accident rate that seems to run uh, you know, high every year. And it's climbing very high this year because of no flying last year. And in fact, there was an article recently about uh, business aviation accidents are on the increase right now, which, yes, is, which is totally out of character. So. Um, yeah, we're going to have to watch this accident rate very carefully. Yeah, we're dying to catch up to the numbers. Yeah, great. I mean, really? I mean, we had an opportunity. To, to, it was down. We had an opportunity to keep it down. But no, now we're running it up at a rapid rate. Yeah. And we haven't even touched upon the airplanes that run out of fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still getting those. And just to save a nickel a gallon sometimes, it looks like. I, yeah. I mean, the NTSB doesn't dig into these enough as much as they should but it looks like to try to get back to home base where you get a nickel fuel for a nickel a gallon less you're taking risk on how much fuel you have to get back home uh yeah. it's crazy that's crazy in fact i 
a funny story. Wally Fink one time, and I had an accident, but she wasn't part of the accident. She just happened to be there and, and met up with me in the hotel. But she pulled out of her pocket her, her little wooden stick, yeah. dipstick to measure the fuel. Called the Wally stick. I yeah, still got mine. Yeah. We had a good laugh over that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Well, gentlemen, thanks as always. And, uh, and of course, uh, I, I believe it was a, a, an informative discussion and uh, I look forward to next week when we get back together to talk about it. I'm on travel this week. I don't know about you, John, but uh, I'll be traveling, but I'm sure that we will have some good stories. So with that, I'm going to leave you with our last words. Okay, everybody, please fly safely. All right, thanks again.